The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome all of you here, whether you're a member or visitor, welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. May his grace and peace be with you this day. Next week, Brett and I are beginning a new sermon series on Psalms and the seasons of life. And we're really excited about this sermon series that will last through the summer. And yes, it's intentional. We're talking about the seasons of life, particularly not only the seasons that all of us go through in our own lives, but it's going to be a season of life for this church as we move to a new building. And the Psalms is just rich with language to God and about God, that's open and honest about our lives, and open and honest about God. And so we want to spend several weeks in the book of Psalms and talking about the seasons of life. But today is our last Sunday of our sermon series on Easter, the resurrected life. And to finish this sermon series, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I think David Ross said, this is going to be my best sermon yet because I'm going to bring in a, a ringer, any, any, uh, anyone that doesn't preach besides me. Thank you, David, for that vote of confidence. <laughs> but I've invited uh, my good friend, Margaret Carter, to join me, and I'll ask her to come up here in a minute. And we're just going to talk a little bit about her life I met Margaret Carter at East County Church of Christ in Gresham, Oregon. Her and I went to church together. It was outside Gresham's outside Portland, Oregon, when Kim and I lived up there. East County Church of Christ was our supporting congregation in Uganda. And I fell in love with Margaret, and she adopted me as her son. My mom's here, but I've got another mom. And yes, she, she talks to me like she's my mom. Ben, why are you doing? Why are you doing this? But I want to tell you a little bit about Margaret before I invite her up. Um, Margaret was the first African-American woman to be elected to the state legislature of Oregon. Is it? She was elected to the state legislature in 1984. And then uh, she, in 2000, she was elected to the Senate and served till 2008. She at one time was in charge of the budget, $18 billion budget, which she said, well, I can do a budget. This is just a matter of adding zeros to the end. <laughs> Before that, she served 27 years as a counselor at Portland Community College. She has buildings named after her in Portland. But that's not why I asked Margaret to come and speak to us. Margaret also, by the way, I should mention, when she was in the legislature and when she was in the Senate, she has nine children, and she was a single mom for most of that. She has, I lose track, 26 grandchildren and 16 great-grandchildren. She gave me permission to say this, and you need to know this, because once you see Margaret, you're going to think, this is unbelievable. This, she is 82 years old. 
she gave me permission to say her age. And all of you are going to say, I wish I looked like her and had the energy of Margaret Carter when I'm 82. Amen. I promise you're going to say that. But I didn't invite her because of her titles, to be honest with you. She has great titles. But I didn't invite her because of her titles. I invited her because of her testimony. I invited her to talk about the hardship she's faced and the way God has worked his own resurrection in her life. And so, Margaret, I want to ask that you come up, and if we could give Margaret a big springs welcome. And while we, Thank you. while we read a text this morning, and we're going to read another text at the end, my intention is, is that Margaret Carter's life is our text, is our testimony, is our witness. Thank Margaret, thanks for being here. Thank us. you, Ben, and thank you, members of the congregation, for receiving me in the manner in which you have. I feel among brothers and sisters, and I feel comfortable. At first, I was quite nervous, I should tell you. But I'm thankful to God that we have sisters and brothers across this land that understand that flesh and blood is of this physical world and not of God. Amen. Why don't we start, just to get a little context, give us a little bit of background. What was it like in your growing up years? Talk about growing up in Louisiana. It was um, a very interesting life. My father was a Baptist minister. My mother worked alongside him. But everybody else in my family were Church of Christ. And so you can imagine that. No, uh, we can't imagine. No. <laughs> We'd have to always go back home and I played piano for my father's church. Oh, my grandmother just knew I was going to die and go to hell. <laughs> and so when I heard this singing here this morning, I said, praise God. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really a, a life of trials and tribulations because the deep south at that time, I couldn't have been before you guys at that time. But that's physical stuff. You put that kind of stuff behind you because God is love. And those that say that they love God and don't love their fellow man, you know what John just got through talking about, okay? So it was a, a life where my father was a carpenter and a home builder, and we were called the greenhouse girls because um, my father always built our homes and stuff of that nature. But we had, had the kind of trials that came from a community that, that loved each other. And when every, anything went wrong with one person, it wrong, went wrong with all people. But at that time, the economy was of such in the 30s and 40s, you know that, in terms of everybody struggling. And it was it a was hard time. But I tell you, I really loved black-eyed peas and cornbread. And I still remember that. And I still cook them until this day, you know. And, uh, but we struggled, but we knew that there was a God and that that was not going to always happen. And people didn't walk around feeling all sad, Ben, because they had to eat beans and cornbread every day or even go to the store and get some neck bones and make some gravy with it and that kind of stuff. I'm pretty happy today. I'm pretty healthy today. I have a little high blood pressure, but I'm still moving. Yeah. And I'm grateful to God for that. You know, so I, I do things in moderation now, because when you learn better, you do better, right? And, and that's exactly what I've been doing. I think David is right. This is better than anything I could preach already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fired. Yeah. 
Well, Margaret actually has agreed. We, we've had some long conversations, of course. I've heard lots of her stories, and she's agreed to be open and vulnerable this morning. That's right. So I'm going to ask her a pretty direct question. Uh, in your first marriage, uh, you faced a lot of hardships. Yes. In your first marriage. Right. Would you be willing to talk with us about that and Without share? Without a doubt. Um, I think that when you go through trials and tribulations like I went through, I was in the hospital with a broken jawbone, and I was um, beaten if I did answer him. I was beaten if I didn't answer him. But you know, guys, I'm telling you, as a woman of faith, I never lost sight on God. I continued to pray and give him thanks even though I was battered and bruised. If we do not look at Calvary as something where there was life, there was death, but there was resurrection, which gives us hope in Jesus. And so I kept my eyes on the prize. The prize, I'm sorry, uh, the prize was the thing that was so important to me, more than any, any beating that I would have ever received. The eye stays on the prize. And you might not be physically beaten. It can happen to you emotionally in a world, in a fallen world. Even though we are human beings in a world that is fallen, but yet we brush it off and get back up. That's what Christ wants us to do. We got to show the world that we have trials like you do sometimes. But we have a God, and he lifts us up. That's what, I'm sorry, Ben. That's, oh, preach, uh, that, preach. <laughs> that, 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 that's what is Come important on. to us as Christians, to keep our eyes on that prize because there is hope in that heavenly realm. So, and when you went to the hospital with a broken jaw. Yeah. And spent a week in the hospital because your husband hit you. Right. And that right. wasn't the only time he hit oh, you. Oh, no, no, not the only time. My eye was swollen and, and everything else and. Oh, yes, I cried. I cried because anytime you have physical harm, you cry. But sometimes it's emotional. And I had psychological problems for a while after that, Ben. Mm -hmm. But I did not let it betray me. See, we can allow things to betray us if we're not careful in making sure that we understand what Calvary was all about. It was about suffering. And he gave us examples for that. And I felt that my suffering was nothing near Christ's suffering and that I would overcome that with his blessings. Well, I know at that time, and it's still today, right? Uh, you didn't have much voice. That's right. I didn't. You were in your 20s. Right. You had five children. That's exactly right. Um, you, you told another interesting story the other night, and I didn't know this story until this weekend. Uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing that, you had a you had a, a babysitter. That's right. And because you had to work. Yes, I and had to. You were work. working in a factory. Uh, yes, I was working in an ammunition plant. We were making bullets for the Korean War, the Korean conflict. Mm -hmm. And um, your ex-husband mm -hmm. took a liking to your babysitter. That's exactly right. And had an affair with her. That's exactly right. Will you tell us? That event that happened with your child and the babysitter and your husband, and would you but, mind sharing that story? Oh, sure, sure. And um, sisters, I can say to you that many times 
we go through physical things in this world. And this world is an infallible place. But as Christians, we have Christ Jesus in our lives to continue to look to, even when we're going through that. My babysitter was 19 years old. My husband started an affair with her. I got a call in November, about November the 8th, in 1964. She had put my baby in a tub of hot water. My baby was burned second and third degree. They had to make her feet over because she was, at eight months old, she was so young that everything just melted together. But through faith and through trials, I haven't cried about this in years, so forgive me. My baby lived and she still walked at 13 months old. She didn't hardly have hands, she had to make her fingers. And even until this day, after 77 major surgeries, she loves the Lord. Her mother still has faith in God. My eye is still on the prize. And every time she goes to the hospital, I relive that day. The neighbors heard my baby crying and crying for hours on hours. Finally, my neighbor said she went down to see what was wrong. And there she saw my baby where the girl hadn't, didn't even know what to do. And my baby's skin just came off of her. Forgive me for being so graphic, but I want you to know what the Holy Spirit can do for you, okay? I mean, you can see those kind of things. I was called many times to her bedside. If I went to get some water, I heard a cold red being called. And I knew it was my baby. Because they didn't expect her to live. She's now 51 years old serving the Lord in all of his goodness, putting behind her the pain, the shame, and the hatred that one could have for a person who would do something like that. But I want you to know, do not grow weary in well-doing. I even said that to Ben and Kim when Bella was sick. If it's not for the Lord to take her home with him, do not grow weary in well-doing. Continue to have hope and continue to have faith because if the Lord isn't ready for that baby, she will not go. And thank God all of us today celebrate Bella where she is in her life. Don't take your eyes off calories, sisters and brother. In one event, there was crucifixion, there was death, but hallelujah for that resurrected morning. Hallelujah for that resurrected morning. Because that means that you and I, no matter what we go through, we will, in hope, in Christ Jesus, rise above it all. We will. So I want to talk to you about uh, after your jaw was broken. And you spent a week in the hospital. Yes. 
You got out on a Sunday. That's right. Talk about what God did in your life to get you away from that abusive marriage. Talk about that week after okay. you got out of the hospital. Okay. You're still in Louisiana. Still in Louisiana. Still in Shreveport, Louisiana. My friend that I just saw here, the professor from the university. The interesting thing about that, hospitals don't usually discharge you on a Sunday. And that has reigned true in my mind over the years. I'm wondering why I was discharged on a Sunday. But nevertheless, my mom and my dad came to the hospital to take me home. I went to bed that Sunday night full of medication. But Monday, I felt a little better, even though my face was still swollen. My sisters, you know how, you know how siblings can be. They said she looks like Frankenstein. But <laughs> and we went forward. But that Tuesday morning, I awakened. I awakened to a new day. And it was really interesting. I had a dream, but I call it a vision. When I awakened that Tuesday morning, I was told to go underneath the right-hand side of my bed. I was supposed to be marrying a young deacon at the church, but I didn't. I'd married this heinous man because he made me laugh. So much for laughing. In doing that, underneath those pearls was the phone number of some friends I had not seen in years. And I dialed that number. And my girlfriend answered the phone. I had not seen them in 10 years. And she said, Margaret, is this you? I said, yes, this is me. She said, you sound so sad. And I'm not a sad person. I'm an upbeat person. And she said, what is going on? I said, I'm just getting out of the hospital. She said, for what? I mean, obviously, what? And um, I said, yes, my husband broke my jawbone, and I'm just getting out of the hospital. She said, you don't have to take that. You can come with us. I said, where are you? She said, no, you just dialed the phone number. I said, but I don't know where 503 is. <laughs> and she said, Portland, Oregon. This was on a Wednesday. And it was the week, uh, on a Tuesday, this was the week of Thanksgiving, 1967. That Saturday, I had sold as much furniture as I could to try to raise money for me and my children, five little babies, to have a ticket to go to Portland, Oregon. On that Saturday morning, we were on a train bound for Portland, Oregon, not knowing where we were going, not knowing how I was going to make it as a single mom, but I tell you, that little voice kept me strong. I want you to know that was the voice of the Lord sending me into new ground. I did not know it at the time, but I want you to know that. I did not know I was going into new ground because Portland, Oregon is known as the least church-going place in the West. And I'm going out there all filled and, and excited about serving the Lord and People would go and be looking sad and down. and that kind of, I'm saying, what is wrong with these people? Do they know the same God that I know? And what he had just brought me out of 
You know I was beyond him being just a great God. He was the greatest God ever lived and been in my life. And I stayed there. And then going there, I saw everything that I had dreamed. I had dreamed I was in this faraway place where there were beautiful red flowers. I didn't know they were roses at the time. And, you know, Oregon is called the city of roses. Portland is, I mean. And when I got there, I was wondering how I was going to eat, where I was going to stay. But my friends had said, we won't be at the station waiting for you because we don't believe you're coming. But when you get there, you call us and we'll come. They had to bring two cars to put me and five kids in. And I was just wondering, Lord, how are you going to make this work? One of the sisters with three children said, Margaret, you're going to live with us. And whatever we eat, whatever the Lord provides for us, he will provide for you too. And six of us moved into that family four-bedroom house when it was the husband and them and three other children. But you know what, folk? In time of crisis, you can do what you need to do if you want to do it. And the Lord blessed us. And the Lord blessed me to be able to make a difference in my city, Ben, in my state. And I continued to serve him with high regard as I do today. I want you to know there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. Amen. Nothing. No children, no sisters and brothers, no husband, none of that. And by the way, I am single. <laughs> And, and it, was, it was just exciting to be able to be on a journey in that way. And, um, and I enjoyed even more knowing the Lord and becoming closer in his grace and in his mercy. Well, you, you, uh, you, you mentioned this, a little part of the story. It took you three days to get to Portland. That's right. And oh, the first right. stop, no, it's okay. The first stop, you stopped in Kansas City. We stopped and in they dropped, they, they had to get off the train and wait till the morning. You had $100 in your pocket. $100, that's all I had. And for. five kids and didn't even know anyone in Kansas City. So no where did you sleep that night? The, I met the guys on the train because I like to play cards, right? And so I don't meet any strangers. You'll know that. No, right, Gene? I don't meet no strangers. <laughs> and... Um, and I said uh, to the, the guys on the train that when the babies would go to sleep, because we couldn't afford uh, what they called the, the car bed, what are they on the trains? Yeah, they couldn't afford a Pullman, thank you. Uh, didn't have that, because I told you, I only had $100 now. And so they would um, call and, and they would fix some food in the back when everybody else couldn't see and bring me some potatoes that they had fixed or something like that because the kids had gotten tired of eating fried chicken and, and bread and some fruit that I had in the bag. For, bag, not even a basket, okay? Bag. When we got on that train, he told the guy, I want you to watch out for, these, for this mother and her children. They took me under the the basement of the train station and in underneath that train station was a tall bed and he said don't be scared but I can't let anybody see you guys and there my five children laid in that bed and I was standing up like this sleeping we couldn't afford a hotel we couldn't even afford a bread and breakfast and so I was just grateful to these guys for giving us that opportunity to have a chance to sleep in a bed with my children. 
and I rested until the next morning, Ben, because of the graciousness of those people that I had met along the way. God is good, folk. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, two, two more questions. Okay. Um, in your work as a, as a state legislature, mm-hmm. legislator, uh, in your freshman year, the very first year, 1980, would have been 1985, mm-hmm. um, not, for you th- to set up this question, you guys know the international headquarters of Nike is in Oregon. And you introduced some legislation uh, that would end the, and at that time in South Africa, there were apar- apartheid was going on. You introduced right. some legislation that would, that would um, require businesses from Oregon to not do business in with South apartheid. Africa. That's right. Um, since Nike was there, you woke up a sleeping giant in That's Nike. Exactly. And I like Nike. I might have some Nike stuff on right now, right? <laughs> But can you talk about that just a little bit, about what that oh, meant yeah. for you to, and what well, happened with Nike? I, I should tell you that all the business people who had helped to elect me, all of them were angry with me. All of Nike workers were angry with me. Nike had $800 plus million invested in South Africa. And I talked with them and I said, 10% of the people in South Africa live on 90% of the land and the others live on only 25, I mean 10% of the 90, other 90% lived on 10% of the land. And I say too many people are being killed, so there should be some mercy here. And in talking to Nike, they said, we can't do it. We got to get our investment out of there first. Called on communities across the country. Oregon being such a small state, people were absolutely shocked that we could do anything. The governor at the time was a Nike consultant, but he was also my friend. And he said, I tell you what, Margaret, we will do something, but give us a chance to withdraw our investments out of South Africa before you do anything. Now, don't forget, I got voters over here. So I was torn between the voters, Ben, and my position in the legislature, which from the day I went there was involved in leadership. So I managed to wait and I got all kind of dirty, nasty letters from my constituents, but then I got death threats from other people that they had to have the state police to help uh, protect me. And I'm sure our representative that is here today understands when you vote in a way that the majority of the people don't like or they're the large group of people don't like, they're on your trail. And let me tell you something, they spend every penny they can to get at you. But I didn't let that bother me because I felt that these people should not be living in the conditions in which they were. And I know there are people who don't agree with me and I understand that totally, I understand that. But when it came to social justice, I felt very strongly about that. Death threats and all was frightening to me and we had to put lights all up around my home even until this day. I just got through being followed last summer 
and the police had to come out and give protection. I, I don't know why they think I'm so, I'm, do I look like I'm a violent person? <laughs> no, I don't look like I can scare nobody. But for some reason, I'm threatened a lot. But I also know why. I'm highly opinionated, but not without data. <laughs> not without data. And I just feel, Ben, <laughs> that there are some things we are called to do, and we have to do it. And yeah. that's what I've felt Amen. about it. Well, you've talked about uh, the resurrection you've experienced, right. that you were saved from something, and then God gave you a chance uh, to serve publicly. Right, right. That you're not only, we've talked about this at the Springs, that you're not just saved from something, you're saved for something. For, uh, let me make that distinction. Preach. Allow me to make that distinction. Some of us are running so far away from what God had given us and we are so busy feeling down in sorrow and holding our heads down, we can't even look up and see that there's a God. And we don't have to. When he went to Calvary, he died for our forgiveness. He died for mercy. He died for grace. All of those things. And the thing that we have to do is to believe in that. And we have to believe it in such a way that we continue to walk that God would want us to walk. And you know what? I'm not afraid to own him no matter where I go. Even in the state legislature, the first day I went in, the guy said, Margaret, I'm from the liquor industry, and we fill everybody's cabinets how they want them done. And I went back to my office, and one of the members of the group said, what do you want? I said, I don't drink. I don't want anything. Yeah, but you might have customers who, uh, your, I mean, your constituents who come here and want to have a drink. I said, not in this office. And let them go buy it. Either I'll even buy them, but I don't, I don't want to buy it for me. But the thing is, people know where I stand. Do not compromise your position on being a Christian. Do not ever do that. You know what? If you're ashamed to own him, he'll be ashamed to own you in that great getting up morning. So I'm going to tell you, the reward is greater to live for him on this earth now. Because that is how sinners become redeemed. Through how we walk, how we talk, and how bold we are. I'm not talking about zealotry, okay? There's a big difference. I don't go out on the corner and hail God and that kind of stuff. But if you ask me questions, you're going to hear it. Period. And when I sing in the legislature, because I had a roommate, she didn't want people talking about God in the legislature because of church and state separation. And she, for after five years, told me one day, Margaret, pray for me. After five years, folk. Do your walk and do it with grace and people will see the Lord working and walking in you. And Ben, that's what I try to do even until this day. And I don't let nobody bully me about what I believe. I should tell you that. But don't, you don't believe that, though, but I know. Because this little old woman, you know, they think she's 82 years old. We can conquer her. Not with my voice, you can't. <laughs> Not with my voice, you can't. 
Because my voice is a voice that the Lord has given me, and he sent me to a place not running from Louisiana, but running to Portland, Oregon, to be able to be a spokesperson for the state legislature. It's church and state separation. I agree. And I do not live a binary life, but I sure don't mind speaking up when you ask me to sing. I sing from the spiritual book of life. You ask me to speak, I always say, but I want you to know I'm a Christian. I do that because I don't want people to ever be confused about who I serve and who I walk with and who I work for. Not at all. Amen. So she, she said the other day that one of the things when I asked her, what's, what was your mission? Why did you do public life? And she said, uh, well, I did it because I wanted to serve children, the poor, and the elderly. And she was saying this the other day to her staff, and they were like, well, Margaret, you are one of the elderly. <laughs> and I said, I might be elderly, but I have a voice. I have a platform that God has given me, and I speak up for them and for me. Amen. Period. Well, Margaret, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Your life is a testimony. It has been for me, and I hope it's for you guys, that it is God's word, God's testimony about resurrection. To be laying in a bed with their jaw broken, with an abusive husband and five children, and to get on a train five days later. Right. right. With $100 in your pocket and going to a faraway land. It, I told her, it reminds me of Abraham. She went by faith. By and, faith. God, and God brought about a resurrection in her life and has brought about a resurrection in so many lives that have been touched by Margaret. That's right. Thank you for giving your life to God. Thank you. And just let me leave this with you. I want you to know my greatest hope in life, that the day will come when there's no black church and there's no white church. Praise God. Thank you, Margaret. Let's stay standing. Before we sing, I want to remind you of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all, this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, 
but what is unseen is eternal. Thanks be to God.